stand together, brothers and sisters, for the reading of God's Word. <clears throat> Continuing forward in the book of Acts, we're we'll looking at verses 22 through 32 today. I'll read from verse 17 through to verse 42. Please listen carefully because this is God's holy and infallible Word. Then the high priest rose up and all those who were with him, which is the sect of the Sadducees, And they were filled with indignation and laid their hands on the apostles and put them in the common prison. But at night an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go, stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard that, they entered the temple early in the morning and taught. But the high priest and those with him came and called the council together with all the elders of the children of Israel and sent to the prison to have them brought. But... When the officers came and did not find them in the prison, they returned and reported, saying, Indeed, we found the prison shut securely and the guards standing outside before the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now, when the high priest, the captain of the temple, and the chief priests heard these things, they wondered what the outcome would be. So one came and told them, saying, Look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then... The captain went with the officers and brought them without violence, for they feared the people lest they should be stoned. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council. And the high priest asked them, saying, Did we not strictly command you not to teach in this name? And look, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood on us. But Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you murdered by hanging on a tree. Him God has exalted to his right hand to be prince and savior, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are his witnesses to these things, and so also is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were furious and plotted, to kill them. Then one in the council stood up, a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in respect by all the people, and commanded them to put the apostles outside for a little while. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take heed to yourselves what you intend to do regarding these men. For some time ago, Thutis rose up, claiming to be somebody. A number of men, about 400, joined him. He was slain, And all who obeyed him were scattered and came to nothing. After this man, Judas of Galilee rose up in the days of the census and drew away many people after him. He also perished, and all who obeyed him were dispersed. And now I say to you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this work is of men, it will come to nothing. But if it is of God, you cannot overthrow it, lest you even be found to fight against God. And they agreed with him, and when they had called for the apostles and beaten them, they commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. So they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer suffer shame for his name. And daily in the temple and in every house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. And thus ends the reading of God's word. Amen, amen. Please be seated. So as we move ahead here in the book of Acts, we come to another example of very intense persecution and committed, bold witnessing for Jesus Christ on the part of his church leaders And we are once again, brothers and sisters, to be encouraged by the Lord's love and His work on behalf of His church. And as we consider today's text, our encouragement rises, if you will, to the highest spot, to the right hand of God, to the right hand of the throne of God is where the apostles take us in their response. And we will end there at our final moment in the sermons, considering Christ as our Prince and as our Savior. 
First, we'll recall the setting together. I'm going to have us look primarily at verses 17 through 21 when we reread the setting, but I will list some of the things that were going on so we can recall the setting. And then there's the report of the empty prison uh, in verses 22 and 23, and then the perplexity of God's enemies on display there in verse 24. And then... Where are the prisoners? There's a report that comes from this unnamed person. They're free and they're preaching, which is a great way to understand God's church. The gospel will always be free going forth in this earth. And then we'll see that the captain goes and retrieves the apostles without violence and brings them back. More mention is made of the impact the gospel, the impact the church has had on the people of Jerusalem there in verse 26. And then the apostles are there set before the council this grand ruling council, the supreme court of all of the nation in verses 27 and 28 and how they are questioned and how they are accused once again. And then the P- Peter and the apostles like this glorious broken record. We should be like them. They tell them the same thing they've been telling them from the start in their reply. And then, of course, some questions to know and to love and to obey God, to seek to apply these timeless truths to our own lives today. So first of all, the setting. I will read to us from verses 17 through 21 again so you can see what's going on leading up to this moment. Then the high priest rose up and all those who were with him, which is the sect of the Sadducees, and they were filled with indignation. You remember that? That's the envy that they were having, that uh, false kind of zeal, that sinful zeal that they had. Verse 18, And laid their hands on the apostles and put them in the common prison, But at night an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go, stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard that, they entered the temple early in the morning and taught. But the high priest and those with him came and called the council together with all the elders of the children of Israel and sent to the prison to have them brought. So they're ready to have their trial and demonstrate their power. God has already acted. Now, what led to this is there's this growing and mighty church in Jerusalem. Not just in Jerusalem with people bringing their sick out and laying them in the street for Peter's shadow, but we're told that the surrounding towns are being influenced at this point as well. This message of Christ is spreading, and the people of Jerusalem and the surrounding towns are being impacted by this growing and this mighty church, which is respected and feared. And we also have to recall the sinful zeal of the Sanhedrin, their envy, their abuse of power, uh, the influence of the Sadducean sect, and their great wealth and their power centered there in Jerusalem in the temple. And here we have this angelic miracle that takes place where the apostles are freed and returned to the temple to preach. So that's what's going on. On the one hand, you've got the Sadducean sect of all the powerful Sanhedrin and all really all the sects of Judaism brought together there, set up, ready to have their trial. And on the other hand, God has already moved And the apostles are preaching in the temple. This rebellion against God we looked at last week. We saw the futility of that rebellion. That God's God's word goes forth as they scheme. That's a a good summary of the setting. God's God's word is going forth as they are scheming. Commentary says, The high priest and his party went on with their prosecution. They, supposing they had the apostles, sure enough, called the council together... A great and extraordinary council, for they summoned all the senate of the children of Israel. See here, first, how they were prepared and how big with expectation to crush the gospel of Christ and the preachers of it, for they raised the whole posse. The last time they had the apostles in custody, they convened them only before a committee of those that were of the kindred of the high priest who were obliged to act cautiously. But now that they might proceed further and with more assurance they called together all the eldership, that is, all the three courts or benches of judges in Jerusalem, not only the great Sanhedrin consisting of 70 elders, but the other two judicatories that were erected, one in the outer court gate of the temple, the other in the inner or beautiful gate consisting of 23 judges each. So, if there was a full appearance, here were 116 judges." Thus God ordered it that the confusion of the enemies and the apostles' testimony against them might be more public and that those might hear the gospel who would not hear it otherwise than from the bar. In other words, from the trial. Howbeit the high priest meant not so, neither did his heart think so, 
but it was in his heart to rally all his forces against the apostles and by universal consent to cut them all off at once. So you see the schemes of the enemy, but playing chess with God is always a bad idea. So here comes the report of the empty prison in verses 22 and 23. When the officers came and did not find them in the prison, they returned and reported saying, Indeed, we found the prison shut securely and the guards standing outside before the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. So, this gathering of the entire Jewish leadership, they're there, they're awaiting the apostles. Having sent their temple security team to bring the apostles from the prison shouldn't take too long. But the temple security officers, accustomed to finding their prison prisoners <laughs> right where they left them, there's, they're not there. What do they find? They don't find any reason to explain why the apostles are missing. The prison was shut up securely with no signs of forced entry or exit. The prison guards were at their posts with no reports of anything unusual during their watch. Now, the Lord could have done this however he wanted to. He could have raised the place to the ground if he wanted, right? But instead, he removes them secretly, leaving no evidence behind, leaving the leaders to be perplexed. Commentary says, Christians may experience divine protection in the midst of suffering. The apostles were rescued from prison through an angel of the Lord. Christians will always rely on God, who has not promised, however, that he will always deliver his people from harm and persecutions. We've talked about this, right? A few months after this episode, Stephen is killed, stoned to death. And ten years or so later, James, one of the twelve, is executed in another wave of persecution, in the course of which Peter escapes through another miracle involving an angel. So, stepping away from the commentary, you can see we can't read this text to expect that we will always be delivered from persecutors. But God may, in his power, choose to intervene and to deliver us from the hands of persecutors. Back to the commentary. Few Christians who were in prisons and in labor camps in the Soviet Union and in the People's Republic of China experienced miraculous escapes. But they received divine strength to bear the suffering with patience, faithfulness, and joy. And this is where the battle, this is where the battle lies in these situations, is to love our enemies to the end, the way that Christ instructed us. <clears throat> Verse 24. God's enemies are perplexed. The text says, Now when the high priest, the captain of the temple, and the chief priests heard these things, they wondered what the outcome would be. This word wondered means to be at entirely at a loss, to be in perplexity, to have no explanation in your way of computing things. You can't explain what you're seeing. Another translation says, when the cap captain of the temple and the chief priests heard this report, they were at a loss concerning this information, wondering what this might lead to. We saw the same word used in Acts 2.12, when the people were seeing, hearing the apostles and the church speaking in tongues and in other languages, what a great miracle. It says they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, whatever could this mean? They didn't have what they needed in their framework to interpret what was happening. The Jewish leaders have heard the facts of the situation, and they are unable to reckon up a solution. They, they're, they're perplexed. They don't know how to explain this. Using their own beliefs and their own commitments, they remain unable to explain the facts. So what we'll see in this story is they just ignore the facts, which is often what happened. When important facts come before us or others, if we don't have the truth that we need to interpret the facts, we want to just ignore them. If they don't fit into the little world, little fantasy world we've created for ourselves. And that's what these enemies of God have done. They've created a fantasy world the facts don't fit, so they ignore them. Commentary says, those often distress and embarrass themselves that think to distress and embarrass the cause of Christ. And this phrase here, what the outcome would be, uh, it points to another reason for a part of their confusion. It's their inability to pause and consider the facts at hand. They, they don't have the ability to stop and look at what's happening. Instead, they're envious minds. There's the same momentum from before. They're rushing ahead. What are they really thinking about? They're worried about the outcome. What outcome? About how these facts will impact their power, 
their possessions, and their future prospects. These are the calculations that go into the minds of these Jewish leaders. And recall, they're zealous for God. Paul talks about them being zealous for God. They believe they're doing the Lord's work in these things. Commentary says the demonstrative pronoun in this phrase can refer to the disappearance of the apostles. So it could refer to that, which they can't explain, or to the movement of which they are the leaders in which the Sanhedrin does not seem to be able to control. The perplexity could go to one or the other or both. The possibility that a higher power is involved does not appear to occur to them. They don't seem to consider the possibility, the logical possibility, that perhaps God freed them or some other supernatural power. So then comes the report about the prisoners. They're free and they're preaching. Verse 25 says, So one came and told them, saying, Look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. So you put them in prison. They're not there anymore. They are in the temple and they are still preaching the people. So the council is in the midst of this anxious perplexity and they're interrupted by some more facts that they cannot explain. As I said, playing chess with God never works out well. He's always going to be a few moves ahead, right? (laughs) Where do they find the apostles? They have returned to the temple to teach the people about Jesus Christ, just like the angel had commanded them. And we talked about this last time. They might have been tempted to go elsewhere. They might have thought, now's the time to leave Jerusalem. But the angel told them, no, go back to the temple and, and preach the words of this life. Commentary says their vexation is increased by another messenger who brings them word that their prisoners are preaching in the temple. Behold, the men whom you put in prison are now hard by you here, standing in the temple, under your nose and in defiance of you teaching the people. Prisoners that have broken prison usually abscond for fear of being retaken. But these prisoners that here made their escape dare to show their faces even right where their persecutors have the greatest influence. Now this confounded them more than anything. Common malefactors may have art enough to break prison, but those are uncommon ones that have courage enough to avow it when they have done so. These are unique prisoners, yes? What happens next? Well, again, undeterred, unwilling to consider all the facts that the Lord Jesus is piling out, all these opportunities to repent that Jesus has given to these Jewish leaders, what do they do? Captain went with the officers and brought them without violence, for they feared the people, lest they should be stunned. So they want to get them, they want to bring them, they've got their plans, they're ready to take them down and show them who's who. But they're like, well, we've got to be careful about how we do this, so make sure you bring them carefully. The entire Jewish leadership remains committed to their plan to interrogate the apostles. They're so laser-focused on this one goal, they can't let anything else in. What are they after? They want to stop the spread of the gospel of Jesus Christ. They want to deny the teaching that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. They want to refute the idea that they are murderers and that they did wrong in his death. And they will not let go of their sinful zeal. They believe they're defending God and true religion. And they are doing this even in the face of perplexing occurrences. Their pre-existing beliefs, they, they they will not allow them to be challenged. Jesus not only comforts his apostles by delivering them from prison and reveals his power to keep his gospel going. But think of it. In his mercy and his kindness, he offers another opportunity for these hard-hearted Jewish leaders to pause and to reconsider. But instead, they ignore the power of Christ and rush headlong into more rebellion. Think about these who did go on to perish and who did have their lives laid out before them on the judgment And they'll look back on these moments and see God's kindness to them in giving them even the ones who were guilty of murdering the Son of Glory, giving them more opportunities to repent. Now, neither the temple security team nor the apostles use violence during this arrest. There's no violent attempt to seize them and there's no violent attempt to resist the request. The apostles go along with them without violence, and in a sense, therefore, according to their own decision-making. The Jewish leaders are afraid of the people, primarily because the people hold the church in very high regard at this point in time. Not just those in the church, obviously, but those outside the church. Even those who are not believers. Think of it. What have they heard of? They've heard of the mighty miracles. 
the healings were, remember, every one of them were healed. Every demon was cast out. Oh, and by the way, Ananias and Sapphira falling down what? Dead at the feet of the apostles. And so the people are kind of aware that you don't trifle with this group. And they respect them as well. They see the good things that are happening. They're watching from a distance. They don't want to fall down dead. And they're being converted through that kind of relationship with the church. In addition, the Jewish security team senses they could be stoned. The text actually talks about the way the people might kill them. Now, I don't know if the people are holding stones at this point or if there's plenty of stones lying around. But they sense that they could be in big trouble with the people if they use violence against the apostles. This situation is kind of like a powder keg. It really could have exploded into riotous violence. But both the Jewish officers and the apostles avoid violence at this point in time. It was not the Lord's will for that to occur. Commentary. The support and sympathy of the inhabitants of Jerusalem for the apostles had already been noted in verse 13. We've seen it multiple times. The Sanhedrin officials fear a public lynching if they are not careful in the second arrest of the apostles. Whether some of the believers in Jesus who were undoubtedly present as well would have been willing to use force against the Sanhedrin officials, that is a possibility, right? Everyone's at different, no longer in the commentary, everyone's at different stages of maturity. Some may have still been at the Peter cutting off an ear stage of maturity, perhaps, going on with the commentary. Although Luke consistently describes the followers of Jesus in Acts as suffering willingly, on occasion insisting on their rights, but never is using force in keeping with Jesus' directive in Luke 22, 50 through 51. And that's the setting where the sword is taken out and Jesus says no. So what happens next? They bring them without violence. We're reminded again of the mood of the people towards the church. And we're told, when they had brought them, they set them before the council. And the high priest asked them, saying, did we not strictly command you not to teach in this name? And look, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood on us. So the apostles think of the scene. They're set before this body of judges. Perhaps, if the commentary is correct, over a hundred gathered. This is a very intimidating scene, both the place and the people and what they've done in the past to Jesus. The very setting screams danger and threats to the apostles. Think of it. The very setting says, hey, you should agree with what we're about to say to you. It would work out better for you, for your possessions, for your well-being, for your family, for your job, for your future, for your life, if you would just agree with what you're about to hear. Commentary says, the twelve are taken into the council hall and placed in front of the Sanhedrin. They are made, now think about this, now this is really, think about this. They are made to stand where Peter and John had stood several weeks earlier and where Jesus had stood during his trial. After the first attempt to interrogate the apostles several hours earlier in the morning session of the Sanhedrin, the high priest is finally able to question these people who dared defy the ban on speaking that the Jewish leaders had already issued when Peter had been arrested and interrogated. So that's what's being referenced. We saw that before. The fact that the high priest himself begins the interrogation, you'll note that it was the high priest, this indicates from the point of view of the Jewish leaders the seriousness of this situation, the preaching and teaching of the apostles and the numerous miracles which have taken place in Jerusalem and in other towns in Judea have caused. <clears throat> they knew it was serious to begin with and it's getting worse by the day. They can't stop it so far. So what's the question? The high priest asked this question. Did we not strictly command you not to teach in this name? It's a pretty straightforward question. See, the high priest is referring back to that prior command. In uh, chapter 4, verse 18, here's what he said. They called them and commanded them not to speak at all nor teach in the name of Jesus. This is a total ban. They were not allowed to teach in the name of Jesus anywhere, anytime, any reason at all. That's what the ban meant. And so the, accounts, the council, you can see they're assuming their legitimate authority. They're assuming they have the authority to say this. And so they ask them, why are you disobeying? These are Jewish men. This is in the temple. The council assumes they have unquestionable authority, though. 
unquestionable authority over the temple and its teaching. They do not. No one does. No one has unquestionable authority. <clears throat> Providentially, though, these are the leaders that God has in these ordained positions. So there's a, man, a manner of honor that must be accorded because of God's providence. But you see, the apostles had already given their reply to that assumption in chapter 4, 19 and 20, and they haven't changed their mind. Peter and John answered and said to them back in the past, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge, for we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. So the apostles had already told them that, hey, you know what? You're not acting properly. You're commanding us to disobey God. Commentary says, Thus so those who make void the commandments of God are commonly very strict in binding on their own commandments and insisting upon their own power. Did we not command you? Yes, they did. But did not Peter at the same time tell them that God's authority was superior to theirs and his commands must take place of theirs? And they had forgotten this. <clears throat> so we're called to preach the gospel. We're called to teach and preach in Jesus' name everywhere we go. And if anyone ever commands us to stop doing that, we should say the same thing. We should say the same thing Peter and John and the apostles say. So next comes some accusations from the high priest. First, false teaching, and second, false criticism of the council. Look, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine, here they call it your doctrine, and intend to bring this man's blood on us. So your doctrine, what are they saying? It's as if the high priest is saying, not our doctrine, not the doctrine of the Jewish nation, not the doctrine of the fathers, not the doctrine of the scripture, but some strange doctrine, some false teaching that threatens the true religion. Right? Your doctrine. Commentary says that they had spread false doctrine among the people, or at least a singular doctrine, which was not allowed by the Jewish church, nor agreed with what was delivered from Moses' chair. So they're accusing them of bringing in something false and different and contrary to Scripture. You have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and thereby have disturbed the public peace and drawn people from the public establishment. So they're accusing them of teaching contrary to Scripture, contrary to what is good and healthy and right for true religion. In addition, they say this phrase, to bring this man's blood upon us, as if the high priest is saying, we're not responsible for this man's death. We're not responsible for this man's death. He, like you, rebelled against both Israel and Rome, and he deserved to die. He brought his own blood upon his head. We're not responsible for the death of those who bring guilt upon themselves. You can hear them making that argument. It's not our fault. They're the ones that rebelled against God <clears throat> and his established authorities, and they received what was rightfully due to them. Commentary says, that they had a malicious design against the government and aimed to stir up the people against them. So now they're beginning to accuse them of a kind of treasonous thing against the nation by representing it as wicked and tyrannical and as having made itself justly odious both to God and man. You intend to bring this man's blood, the guilt of it before God, the shame of it before men upon us. Thus they charge them not only with contumacy and contempt of the court, but with sedition and faction and a plot both to set the people against them for having persecuted even to death, not only so innocent but so good and great a man as this Jesus, and also the Romans for having drawn them into it. So you can see how they're expanding the accusations, looking very similar to what they did to Jesus. Going on with the commentary. See here how those who with a great deal of presumption will do an evil thing, yet cannot bear to hear of it afterwards, nor to have it charged upon them. When they were in the heat of the persecution, they could cry daringly enough, His blood be upon us and upon our children. Let us bear the blame forever. That's what they said back during the trial of Jesus. But now that they have time for a cooler thought, they take it as a great affront to have His blood laid at their door. So how do, the, how do Peter and the apostles reply to this? The question, why are you not obeying us? The accusations of false teaching, and of false accusations against the leadership of the Jews. Well, first of all, Peter and the apostles again reference their bedrock principle of discerning commands from God's providentially ordained authorities. 
These are God's providentially ordained authorities. They are not allowed to just willy-nilly, according to their own preference of the moment, to disobey them. They must give a reason, and it must hold up biblically. We ought to obey God rather than men. So it's very simple. The principle is very simple. The situation is very clear. And so we want to be careful in applying this principle in our own lives. What is being said here is very straightforward. Jesus Christ, their Lord, risen from the dead, ascended as King, the one to be obeyed as God, has commanded them to preach repentance and remission of sins in His name. His crucifixion, His burial, His resurrection, His ascension, His exaltation. They are to preach this to all the ends of the earth unto forgiveness of sins, unto repentance in His name. Beginning at Jerusalem and continuing to all the ends of the earth. And they're to be the witnesses of this. They're the ones to say, we saw this. (coughs) We saw Him. (coughs) But the ruling Jewish council contradicting the legitimate Lord and His Word, ignoring His multiple proofs of being their Messiah, specifically command the apostles not to preach or to teach at all, anywhere, anytime, in the name of Christ. This is a very clear situation that, yes, they must disobey this commandment. Commentary. If the alternative is between obeying God and obeying a government policy, disobedience to earthly authority becomes, listen now, a necessity. Now, there are some situations where we might and study this some other time, there are some situations where we'll have choices, where we may disobey, but we're not required to. This is not such a situation. It is a necessity to disobey if someone commands you to stop preaching and teaching in Jesus' name. Back to the commentary. While Christians are citizens of an earthly state, they are also citizens of heaven whose obligations they cannot ignore. Jesus said that we need to give to Caesar what is Caesar's, but to give to God what is God's. And if there is a conflict, God's demands always have priority. Next, Peter reiterates the reality of Christ's resurrection from the dead. The resurrection from the dead answers all of their complaints against them. In so doing, he references the unity and the continuity of the church the church there, that church in Jerusalem, with the ancient Jewish faith shared with those of the council. And he does it in such a loving way. <clears throat> he says, the God of our fathers raised up Jesus. This is a brotherly type of introduction to a very hard reality he's about to emphasize to them. But he, he brings himself and the apostles and all the church into unity with the faith that supposedly these Jewish leaders are to hold to. Commentary. He calls God the God of our fathers, not only ours, but yours, to show that in preaching Christ, they did not preach a new God, nor entice people to come and worship other gods, nor did they set up an institution contrary to that of Moses and the prophets, but they adhered to the God of the Jewish fathers. They're not preaching heresy. They're not preaching something new. And they make that point. This is their response. The God of our fathers. And that name of Christ which they preached answered to the promises made to the fathers and the covenant God entered into with them and the types and figures of the law he gave them. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is the God and Father of our Lord, Jesus Christ. So he's trying to draw on the unity that they should share and to to point to the continuity that is intended to exist in this age with the Old Covenant Church. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you murdered by hanging on a tree. So he brings it home again. The council did indeed bring the guilt of the death of Jesus upon themselves. And the apostles do not shy away from this. Peter openly declares to the entire assembled Jewish Supreme Court that they murdered Jesus Christ. The court, that same court, maybe not as many, but having that authority they erred so severely that they are guilty of participating in the murder of Jesus Christ. While they did not kill Him with their own hands, the Romans did, they did use their influence along with many lies and great deceptions to have the Romans kill Jesus Christ. Commentary says, Jesus' death is the responsibility of the Jewish leaders who murdered Him by hanging Him on a cross 
And that Greek term is used here for the wooden pole with the crossbeam, which was used for crucifixions, probably pointing back to the Old Testament. Peter accuses the Jewish leaders of having treated Jesus like a dangerous criminal, as someone who is under God's curse and who must be eliminated from God's people, the one they're about to describe who has been placed at God's right hand. Look at how you treated him. The reference to the method of Christ's execution is a new element in Acts. In the second temple period, Jews did use this expression, hang on a tree for crucifixion. So what does Peter tell them about Jesus? What do the apostles say? Him God has exalted to His right hand to be Prince and Savior. And he goes on to mention repentance and forgiveness of sins. What does He do as Prince and Savior? He's giving repentance and forgiveness of sins. Now, I don't know about you, but it seems like the natural flow of thought like from our flesh would lead to something more like, at this point in the text, it would be like, and you wicked leaders had better get your act together and obey Jesus or he's going to come back and crush you wicked sinners to the dust. It seems more like it would be an emphasis upon the threats of the punishment that is going to come upon them. But it's not. Instead, they just focus upon Christ, upon the person of Christ and the work of Christ. And they set Christ in all of his fullness, not just as judge who does have the rod of wrath, But first they want Him to be seen as one who is their Savior if they will call to Him. They're offering the sweet gospel of Christ rather than just the vengeful threats from the apostles. Now think about it. They ate with this man. They saw what He did. They saw His compassion and His love and His goodness and His greatness and that there was no one like Him. And they enjoyed His presence. And these are the people murdered their Lord. With what depth of love did the apostles hold Christ in their hearts? With what anguish did they recall His terrible suffering? And how much would that not tempt any human for vengeance? And is not God the God of vengeance? And did not God bring His vengeance upon them? Yes, He did. But this is not the time for that emphasis. Think of it. Such recollections would surely call forth from the flesh the fiery hot indignation of our pride, forgetting to leave room for God's vengeance and His timing in His vengeance and having it warp the preaching of the gospel to these who need to be converted. Instead, what does He do? Under the power of the Holy Spirit, the apostles show forth both boldness and mercy as they make their defense in the form of a gospel presentation. There doesn't seem to be a hint of anger from Peter and the apostles. But real compassion and speaking the truth clearly, but calling them to receive forgiveness of their sins. What is this word prince? It is the chief leader. It is the prince. It's one that takes the lead and shows an example. It's the author. And we see this word used in other places in Acts 3. They killed the prince of life whom God raised up from the dead. In Hebrews 2.10, Jesus is called the captain of our salvation who's being made perfect through sufferings. In Hebrews 12, he's called the author and finisher of our faith. That's the same word for prince. Jesus is leader, prince, author, and being emphasized to them in this way. And in this setting, think of it, it fits perfectly because they've taken illegitimate authority by ignoring who their true leader is. Israel's prince who shares God's authority and who initiated the restoration of the kingdom, he is the one they should be looking to that they're not. The pioneer who opened the path to eternal life in the messianic kingdom and thus to eternal life. The author of life in the new covenant in which God's people enjoyed the fullness of life. They were not looking to the prince and author of life. They were looking to themselves. Christ is not just called prince before them. Because that would, that would, if we stopped there and just looked at that word, that would emphasize threats. It would emphasize <clears throat> the dangers. It would bring to mind what happened to Ananias and Sapphira. 
but he's also Savior, Deliverer, Preserver. This, this word is used 24 times in the Greek New Testament. Starting in Luke, my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior, all the way to 1 John 4, and we have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son as Savior of the world. <clears throat> this word should bring to mind deliverer, conqueror. Uh, think of um, your precious one trapped in a dragon's lair. Think of that. And think of the great and mighty prince breaking through and killing the dragon and delivering your precious one home safely but dying in the process. <clears throat> he is our great deliverer. So the apostles at this point in time want the Sanhedrin, this council, to see Jesus Christ, their Messiah, as Prince and as Savior. <clears throat> what does he do? He leads by example. He made himself our salvation. And he, as our Savior, is our deliverer who gave himself to deliver us. Our enemies have been conquered by Christ. He is our King who saves us and He is our Savior who leads and rules us. No sinful man could be either Prince or Savior for us. But Jesus is both. And He reigns now. And if you're learning this morning from His Word, it's because He's pouring out His Spirit as your continued Prince and Savior. Commentary says, See here, there is no having Christ to be our Savior unless we be willing to take Him for our Prince. We cannot expect to be redeemed and healed by Him unless we give up ourselves to be ruled by Him. The judges of old were saviors. Christ's ruling is in order to His saving. And faith takes an entire Christ. Now hear that, people of God. Faith takes an entire Christ that came not to save us in our sins, but to save us from our sins. <clears throat> and where is this Jesus? He's no longer in the grave. He's no longer walking the earth as a res resurrected one. He has been placed at God's right hand. And He has the name, the Prince and Savior Jesus has the name which is above all names. He's been exalted above everything, above every name, above everything in this cosmos. No man, no council, no collected powers of the universe now or ever, seen or unseen, could ever have the right to command for His great name not to be spoken. Brothers and sisters, His name is above all names and shall be extolled and shouted as above all, even unto all eternities, unto eternities and forevermore after that. How dare they? Commentary says, you loaded him with disgrace, but God has crowned him with honor. And ought we not to honor him whom God honors? To his right hand, to sit there, to rest there, to rule there. He, the Father, has invested him, Christ, with the highest authority. And therefore, we must teach in his name. For God has given him a name above every name. That's where Jesus is. That's who Jesus is. His person. And listen to what He's doing with all of this power and all of this glory. Listen to what He's doing with the name above every name. He is giving repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. So this is a very Israel-focused message. It's not only true for Israel, but salvation began with the Jews, to the Jews, for the Jews, through a Jewish man who fulfilled Jewish Scripture to become the Jewish Messiah and the Savior of the world unto all the Gentiles, whom we are. So what does Jesus do with His power from heaven? The first message, the first message is to repent. The first message is to confess their sins. The first message to the ones who murdered Him is I for, I, you can be forgiven. If they will come and confess their sins, they will be forgiven. 
So while the apostles are very incisive with their indictment of the Jewish leaders, they're no less clear in the tender offer of repentance and forgiveness to these same guilty Jewish leaders. It's easy to forget this. It just will skip over the nation of Israel and go to the Gentiles. No. Uh, skip over the Jewish leaders and go to the poor Jewish people. No. The leaders received the gospel. These same ones who murdered the Prince of Glory can be forgiven by him. Will they receive God's gift of repentance and forgiveness? Some will. Some will. We'll see that as we go through the rest of the book of Acts. Some will, but not most, it appears, do not. So it may be that one of God's major priorities here in this whole process was to have this moment where the entire Jewish leadership received not only evidences of Christ as the Messiah through these events that occurred, the prison, right, the, the perplexing things that occurred, but also they heard the message of salvation. They had an opportunity to repent. The commentary says, Jesus grants Israel repentance and forgiveness of sins. The purpose of God's resurrection and exaltation of Jesus is an offer to Israel. The offer of repentance and the offer of the forgiveness of sins. God offers salvation, not retribution, for the crucifixion of Christ. Now stepping back, retribution is coming. Brothers and sisters, it is God's kindness that leads us to repentance. Now the fear of God initiates and is a part of that repentance. But it is his kindness that leads us to turn and fly to him. God offers salvation, not retribution, for the crucifixion of Jesus. The people of Israel, in particular her leaders, must repent of rejecting Jesus, God's messianic leader and savior, In order to participate in the restoration of the kingdom of God and in the new covenant, the people of Israel must come to faith in Jesus as God's Messiah and thus have their sins forgiven. Just like you, just like me. Finally, they say, and we are his witnesses to these things and so also is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. It's no surprise, right? Their commission they were given ends with, and you are my witnesses to these things. So they're just very simply recounting what they've been told to say about Jesus over and over again. And they bring in the Holy Spirit this time. The apostles close their defense by referencing their status as witness to these things. Oh, these things. These are wondrous things, right? They observed his life. They... Observed his death, not all of them. They all observed the resurrected Christ. And they all saw him ascended, which is this exaltation that they speak of. They know where he went when he ascended. They received the Holy Spirit from God's throne, poured out upon them by the Father and the Son. And of note, if you look through this response from Peter, it's a Trinitarian response. You see, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are mentioned in this response. So... The Holy Spirit, how does the Holy Spirit testify? Think about it. Through these signs and wonders that have occurred, through the demons being cast out, through all these healings, through the conversions, the mighty conversions that are taking place. We know that's the Spirit's work. So the the apostles at this point, they've marshaled all the evidence. They brought it all together. Look, we're here testifying to this. Look at what the Holy Spirit has done. They want to ignore it. They're not paying any attention to the miracles, to the how they get out of the prison. They're just ignoring these things. But the apostles bring the evidence. Sadly, and we'll look at this more next week, instead of believing and obeying the combined testimony of the apostles, of the church, and of the triune God, the response of this council is more sinful indignation and a hunger for more innocent blood. It's an expression of more unbelief and rebellion. And it demonstrates to us how none of us will come to Christ apart from His grace. And you and I would walk right down that same path of rebellion and unbelief were it not for God's grace. So, a few quick questions to try to emphasize some of these key principles for us today in our own lives. Do you understand and do you believe that no power of earth 
or hell. No collected power of God's enemies ever could destroy God's church or thwart God's plan or overcome His might or dim the glory of His love for you and for His people. You're His beloved. Did you know that David, the word David, has its source in the word beloved? Or do you fear man? Because the truth is they can come and take your property. They can ruin your reputation. They can put you in prison or imprison your family members. They can even kill you. And we know from Scripture and from history that that could happen to us. But nevertheless, do you understand that nothing can destroy God's church, thwart His plan, overcome His power, or dim the glory of His love for you? Another way of asking the question is, do you understand and believe that no matter what God chooses to do with you, God's glory will always shine through your life as you trust in Him and walk with Him? Or do you fear? So what controls you? The love of God or the fear of man? So as you think on these things, as you consider who God is, you consider apostles delivered from a prison, the miraculous way that they were delivered. Think of the healings and the miracles. Think of demons cast out, every one of them. But you also consider Stephen stoned to death and James killed with a sword. When you think of these things, how do you respond to all of this? Well, I would offer to you that God commands us to respond in one way. With faith and praise. With faith and with praise. Does your heart swell with praise when you consider the reality of who God is as your Prince and your Savior who has been raised up to God's right hand and who loves you with an everlasting love? And are you encouraged to greater obedience no matter the threat? So, you know, what we have in view here are these external threats. So there's other things that keep us from obedience, right? Our own sin, demonic deceptions. But what's in view here really are the threats of the world. The threats of the world against us. And so are you encouraged to be obedient no matter what the threat is, particularly in view of the threat of this world, the threats of this world towards you and your family? And, you know, I hope that... The, the children and the young adults, you know, you guys have not necessarily experienced these things in your life as much. But as you grow and as you move towards your own household and your own responsibilities as a husband or as a wife, um, as a young adult uh, in this world, you'll bump into these threats, right? It's, it's everywhere around us. The ridicule for trusting in the scriptures, the uh, mockery that comes our way, the the coordinated efforts to marginalize and malign those like us who believe the Word of God, who believe that the Scriptures are true, and who walk in the confidence of who God is and what He has done in Christ and what He is doing in this earth. We'll face those threats. Next, second broad category, do you understand Jesus Christ is both your Prince and your Savior? And the commentary emphasized this. He not only died upon the cross as an atonement for sin, but he also was raised up to God's right hand where he now rules over all. And I like the way the commentary put it, an entire Christ. And you've heard us talk about before here this truncated gospel that we're all tempted toward and that is really and sadly appears to be flourishing in so many corners of Christianity today. Christ is currently your Savior. Christ is currently your Prince. There's no division in Him. Neither in His person nor in the timing of the expression of His person. These things flow forth from Him. 
at all times. That he is both Prince and Savior. And so similarly, what should be our response to this? Faith and praise. Faith and praise. And thus, encouragement to greater obedience as you know Him and ponder Him. Less fear. More caught up in His love for you. Next. Does the Holy Spirit testify to the gospel message to you observe this around you in your life? in our church, in your family, in God's church. We should expect signs and wonders from time to time as God's church is going forward. We should expect to see miracles from time to time as God's church is moving forward in the earth. The canon is closed and many mighty miracles accompanied the giving of God's divine revelation while the canon was open. And many such divine miracles did come to cessation when the canon was closed. But God did not stop doing miracles in the midst of his church to testify to Christ as the Messiah. We should expect to see miracles. And I posit to you that one of the great reasons we probably don't is because we don't have the faith to really believe that God still acts in this way. That's not a guarantee. God does what God sees is fit. Just like we can't always expect Him to deliver us from persecution and deliver us from the loss of persecution. But we should still expect and pray accordingly that the Holy Spirit of God will testify to Jesus Christ as the Messiah through miracles and wonders that He does as the gospel goes forth through His church. And as we've said before, the greatest miracle of all, and the text puts it this way, in terms of the giving, the greatest miracle is that any hard-hearted, hell-bound, sin-loving Christian would ever confess their sin to God and repent before Him. This is the greatest miracle of all. Taking a hard human heart and reaching in and giving a heart of flesh from heaven. And making us new creations. New creations. Your new life in Christ is compared to the great miracle of creation. Let that sink in. So what's a greater miracle? Creation or healing an illness? What's a greater miracle? Creation or casting out a few demons? The miracle in you, wrought by God's Holy Spirit, is compared to the great power and the might of creation. So indeed, the Holy Spirit continues to testify. If you have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you have confessed your sins to Him, and you have repented and turned away from your sins, and by His grace devoted yourself to following Him, and knowing Him, and loving Him, and living for Him with every breath and every heartbeat, and every step, even though you fail, but you get up and you want to keep going. If this has occurred in your life, glory, praise be to God, never lose the joy of your salvation and what the Holy Spirit of God has done in you. Does the Holy Spirit of God still testify today to Jesus Christ as our Messiah? Amen. So response, faith and praise. Do you rejoice in God's sovereign grace to you? Did you give yourself confession of sin? Did you muster somehow uh, from within yourself the belief that you are a sinner? Did you somehow convince yourself that God would forgive you if you repented? Did you somehow convince yourself that Jesus Christ, the glorious one, would die upon the cross for you? Or is this faith a gift to you? Oh, praise Him, brothers and sisters. Let us praise Him for the glorious gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Almighty and gracious Heavenly Father, we do praise You and thank You, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, for the great salvation that You have wrought in us and through us for Your glory, raising up the name of the Lord Jesus Christ above every name, our great Prince and Savior. And we rejoice to be Held in your hands, O God, safe in your arms.
delivered by the work of Christ, which cannot be undone. Led by our great captain through your glorious law of love and by the work of your spirit within us. Sanctified to have his mind and his heart and his hands and his feet. Bless us, we pray, O God, to be like this faithful band of apostles and church members in Jerusalem. Bless us, we pray, O God, with the outpouring of your Holy Spirit under the fame of the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, making this church here and your church everywhere a thriving church like what we see there in Jerusalem in A.D. 30. All to the praise of your glorious name and to the victory of your gospel and your kingdom over every square inch of this earth so that every knee would bow and every tongue would proclaim that Jesus Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords to the praise of God the Father and all the tongues of the earth and all the lungs of the earth and all the songs that are written would be for you and for your glory and to your praise. In Jesus' name, amen.